The headlines are screaming at us. Schools are failing. But are they? Last season, we tried to figure out what made a school good by looking deeply at just one example, that of an unquestionably bad school that became, by all reports, good. This season, we come at this question by looking at the apparent controversies surrounding schools in America to see what sense we can make of them. Bailey taught us where to look for the markers of schools that are good, taught us to attend to what takes care of teachers so they can take care of students and grow together, and attending as well to the shared responsibility and rich relation. It turns out that what's wrong with schools is not the teachers or the learners, but a policy-level failure to create the conditions in which education can flourish. What are those conditions? Glad you asked. I'm Barb Stengel, the host of Chasing Bailey. Stay with us this season as educators from Bailey and beyond speak out. Welcome back to Chasing Bailey. In this episode, we're going to take on a topic that's critical to any teacher's career, teacher learning. Referred to in shorthand as professional development, PD is too often poorly designed and implemented by schools, districts, and the consultants who sell themselves and their products. The Bailey story will guide our thinking here. That means we'll be unpacking Peter Senge's idea of a school as a learning organization, a place where everybody is learning and growing together in service of a common goal. We've been starting each episode with headlines that portray the issue in crisis terms, but this is a topic that doesn't make headlines. To find mention of professional development, I had to turn to Ed Week, Education Week, the weekly publication devoted to all things P-12 schooling. Here are the headlines I found in Ed Week in the past year. What do educators want from professional development? Professional development that matters, what teachers say they want. Teacher professional development explained what works and what doesn't work in Teacher PD. None of these headlines is really controversial. All capture a very real question and all try to provide some kind of answer to this apparent puzzle. But here's the kicker. There is no puzzle. For at least my 45 years in education, we have known what actual teacher learning looks like and what teachers think about how that should unfold. Teachers learn and grow in and through practice. The best professional development is embedded in the job, desired by the teacher, and ongoing, supported by relationships between and among teachers, their coaches, and leaders. At Bailey, between 2012 and 2016, that's how the teams grew together. I'm going to let teacher leader Keisha Harding, Vanderbilt professor Emily Pendergrass, academic dean Lindsay Nelson, and teacher residents Keenan Kerr and Julia Conrad tell you all about it. We start 
with Keisha and Emily as they discuss Bailey's team structure as the engine of professional development for everybody. And if you don't know what I'm talking about here, head back to season one and refresh your memory. Keisha is now working as a STEM consultant through her own consulting firm, Easel, and as part of the Thinkery in Austin, Texas. Emily remains at Peabody as a teacher educator and a reading program director. In 2012, she was at Bailey as an instructor and coach in the Teaching and Learning in Urban Schools Master's Program, what Keisha refers to here as TELUS. Here's Keisha. The two things coming up for me are absolutely our team structure supported ongoing and active professional development through our um, our team, what did we call it? Our multi-classroom leader model. So we had leaders that we did have part of our day where we were direct instructors to the kids, but we also had pieces of the day where we were with the other teachers and either we were model teaching or we were doing some kind of data dive with the teacher or we were just observing and kind of helping kind of along the way. But we had that built into this team structure and into our time. That requires you to have enough hands though to, to do it, right? You can't just have an eighth grade team of four teachers total to do that. And we didn't just have that. We had a, a few additional hands and we had our residents. So they were also learning from their partner teacher and the um, multi-classroom leader. So even that model alone uh, was a sustainable way to provide pretty consistent professional development on a day-to-day -day basis. Most of our classroom, um, most of our multi-classroom leaders happen to also be TLIS and happen to be close to y'all. So there was this, this line of uh, support and professional development from the top all the way to the residents um, that was consistent and that uh, was was good. It was great. The other thing that I think was the responsiveness of our administrators, and I think this might go back to your question earlier. If we went to Christian and was like, we need this or we need that, he actually did listen and would, would bring in a person or highlight a person we currently had on staff who was good at that. And I think that that's important. Instead of all these districts, when I became a consultant, it actually was very uncomfortable to go to different school districts calling myself an expert. I was very uncomfortable with it because there's so much expertise that already exists within your building, within your district, and people want to hear from their peers. They don't want to hear from someone that they don't know. That's just a fact. So the fact that we had things like visit and learns that's a form of professional development where we know that these teachers are really good at visual data boards. These teachers are really good at classroom management. These teachers are really good at inquiry-based questioning. On your break, go where you want and then come back and like unpack that with your team and what you learned. Mm -hmm. It was all voice and choice. It was all, it also highlighted strength. So you know, I, I want someone to recognize something good that I'm doing. And I also want to give to my peers, right? So in making me, my classroom usually was highlighted as a data room. I had great data visual boards or things that kids were doing with their own self-reflection and then classroom management. Those were the two things that I would be highlighted with the most, which not only made me feel good, it made me feel like I was sharing something. Um, but I also had an opportunity to learn and go 
figure out rigorous questionings from Whitney, you know? So um, I love that. And I love that it was heavily internal. I think with the multi-classroom leaders and the Vanderbilt professors that were in their space, seeing all the different classrooms and saying, hey, go watch Harding do this. Go watch uh, a resident who's doing this really well. Like, I think I'm, I remember sending people to Charles's classroom, like watch her produce some writing with kids, you know? Um, and so it was not one directional, like it wasn't us telling people what to do, but it was us finding and seeing that and learning together. And it was from resident through professor and that back, like it was nexus, like flowing, not a pipeline, you know, it was back and forth between everybody. Um, and I do remember when this, I don't remember which class, there are a couple multi-classroom leaders that did go to Christian with, we want more professional development around coaching and how to be an effective multi-classroom leader and coach novice or resident teachers or even more um, experienced teachers into, you know, the Bailey way. Um, and he did, he listened and brought me in and I did a series of workshops and worked alongside lots of the classroom, multi-classroom leaders um, to think about different ways to approach and coach um, in a sustaining way. And we did it at the school when we didn't, they didn't come to Vanderbilt. We stayed at the school to do that professional development. Sometimes we met really early in the mornings and had coffee. And sometimes we met late in the afternoons, um, just depending on the, the schedule of the teachers. And I think it worked. I mean, like, and we learned the strengths of the coaches in the room and we were like, go watch Nelson, go watch Bradley, go watch Harding and see them talk to a teacher and how they are engaging with this teacher in this way. Um, so I felt like I was almost just more of a connector, like having the benefit of being outside and like watching what was happening. Mm -hmm. uh, while I did deliver some content and think about how to do it, like part of my job was just connecting who was doing what and sending people to observe and learn from others. So um, Keisha, take, take off from that and talk about your present work. Like, do you think of yourself as a connector? Is that something? I, mean, I do. Yes, I consider myself a connector, but even more, I consider myself like an elevator of talent. You have to see people. That's the thing. You can't elevate people if you don't see them, if you don't believe them. So even more than me being a connector, I just believe in seeing and elevating people, period. Why don't we all do that all the time? Because so I, even as a classroom teacher, that's the, what I would do. Well, even with my eighth graders, I'm like, look at all of the things these kids can do. Change your narrative around them while you think they may be this horrible kid. But let's look at all of the things that they can do and shift perceptions, right? And I think that elevator of talent started when I was an eighth grade teacher. And when I went into higher ed and thinking of working alongside teachers, it was the same thing. Like people are doing really good work and we don't recognize that nearly enough. And we, and instead of doing professional developments that are so boring um, and the teachers that are already doing those things are pulling their hair out and the teachers not doing those things don't think it's for them. What, what is it that principals have to be able to do or that teachers have to be able to do for themselves in terms of banding together or elevating one another? 
just that. I and when you when you make space for this idea that if if you, if everybody in the group brings the one thing that they're good at, then we've got it covered. I don't have to be good at everything. I could be good at this one thing because I know my partner is good at this and they're good at this, they're good at this. We got this thing covered. What are the conditions under which people feel valued? I think what you're saying, Keisha, about elevating people, it's like we have it backwards because we think we have to get the success and then we'll elevate people. And with the Bailey kids, no, yep. we don't elevate them. Then we'll get success. Um, and I don't want to suggest it's either or, but do you, do you have any thoughts? That's about it. That? I have nothing else to say. <laughs> oh, okay. That's okay. what I think. I mean, I, one of the things that we talk a lot about in literacy is using the strengths to enhance and grow areas of concern. Um, if we only ever focus on the areas of concern, we're not going to make any improvement. So we mm -hmm. have to find the strengths of the students. And I think that carries to teachers, right? We find the strengths of the teachers and we capitalize on those and use those to work with any areas of concern, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we only ever beat teachers up, we're not, I mean, they're going to quit. They're not going to stay with us, but we laughed, <laughs> we cried together. Uh, we tried new things together. We threw things out and started over. Um, and I just think that was all part of the culture there is that if it's not working, we're not going to keep beating our heads until it does. We're going to change it. Um, we can give it some time and see if it's working, but if it's not, let's brainstorm together and come up with something new. Find strengths and capitalize on them. Is it really so simple? It seems so. At this point, I want to go back to TELUS, the master's program Keisha mentioned, because there is no question that it contributed to a learning culture at Bailey. Of the 40 or so full-time faculty, 10 came to Bailey as participants in, or after participating in, a free master's degree program negotiated by Metro Nashville Public Schools and Vanderbilt's Peabody College. This meant that at any given time, as many as a quarter of the teachers and leaders had studied together as they were working together. They spoke a common language about pedagogy and about students, a language rooted in the perspectives that Keisha and Emily articulated. But even more important, the structure of TELUS enabled educators, both those already in service and those just learning to teach, to be prepared rather than scared working with students whose needs were great and whose prior school experience was not always so great. Listen as Emily and Keisha unpack the ways the system prompts teachers to be scared rather than prepared in high-need schools and how learning in and through practice addresses that. Vanderbilt is situated at Na in Nashville, and so we always have tried to serve the Metro Nashville Public Schools. Um, and the partnership that we was designed before I came to Vanderbilt was with low-performing schools um, that needed that had high needs. Um, when I came in, it was the second year of TLUS, and I started working at Bailey, coaching three literacy teachers. Um, 
and it was a really different atmosphere than some of the other schools that we worked in. Uh, it was predominantly um, black students where the other schools mostly at that time were um, schools with like super diverse populations, you know, a third mm -hmm. American born, a third foreign born, um, kids from just a third Hispanic. Um, just a really interesting diverse population, which we didn't really have at Bailey. Um, my first experience at Bailey, um, I would sit in the parking lot and pray before I went. Um, and Christian used to be really mad that I would say that. I'm like, Christian, it was before you. Yeah. Um, I would come out alive that day because it was a really tough place to be. Um, and it was a tough place to take undergrad and graduate students to have class. Um, and I would hold class at Bailey and the students, and we had all the issues of technology and lockdowns that were going on in real school. So tell me about your belief that it was worthwhile to cite university classes in schools. Um, well, as a literacy professor, I believe that the best way to learn how to become a literacy teacher is through practice. And you cannot practice without kids. Um, it is, does no good to simulate a struggling reader experience among highly educated graduate college students. Um, so we would go out to schools and I would hold, we would learn about a, a strategy, something to do with kids, how to work with students that were struggling. They'd go out and practice it with students, come back. We would reflect and think about it. Um, and we, we would have the rest of class as normal. So it was a lot of like embedded, grounded practice, um, partnership with the school. Um, the first few years at Bailey, we would um, have to find the kids. They would be in their you know, bathrooms, hiding out, um, not wanting to come to tutoring. And we would spend part of our tutoring time locating kids. Um, and then we would dive into reading practices and better strategies to be skilled readers. Um, but it, I believe it was important to be there because it was guided practice um, with me circulating, helping, thinking through how to work with students that were struggling with school-based text. Um, it was important to be in the schools to talk about new media and technology and have all the struggles that schools were having. And at that time, um, it really kept everything in perspective of what could be done in public schools in Nashville, you know, with the lower bandwidth, what was blocked, what was not blocked, um, how do we get into that? So for me, it was just a real world place mm -hmm. for pre-service teachers to be, or maybe even in-service teachers, mm -hmm. because it brought all the nuances of being in school to life. Coming into Bailey and learning in that particular environment was very close to my heart, given my background, family members, just things that I know that I wanted to contribute to the Black community specifically. So it was a very important place to be. Um, it was a very, it was very important to me to go into Bailey, and this has always been my philosophy, with a 
growth mindset. I personally wasn't scared <laughs> of these kids or would I get harmed? Uh, the system makes you scared. Like the fact that I had to learn at Johnson, for example, um, harm reduction, both physically, if a student is coming at you with a a pencil or a scissors or something like that, how to like get it out of their hand, how to self-contain a child. The system teaches you to be scared. So you have to be prepared and know the difference of when the system is teaching you a certain way versus how you truly feel like on the inside. And on the inside, I knew that these kids were just kids who needed some love, who needed some consistency, who yes, needed some discipline. That's, that is okay to say, but they needed that love and consistency. So keeping that at the forefront um, allowed me to have a very joyous experience and a very trusting experience, both mm -hmm. with my professors and with my advisors and people who like you, Barb, just, you know, being around in the building, my um, administrative staff and my colleagues. So um, for me, when I think about what learning in Bailey was like for Telus, it was from that realm. It was, I'm passionate about this. It was, um, I am learning how to take what I already know and what I believe and make it better. It was action oriented. It was not isolated on a, in a fancy campus. Like you, like you said, Emily, it's not we're just fancy over food, sometimes even wine, <laughs> like getting to do these things over here was real, real life here, here in, in the classrooms. I loved having class in our, in my classroom. There's something to be said about having class in the class that you teach. You feel different. You get to experience things differently. You, the smells, you know, like the whole environment. So for me, it was nothing but a benefit and nothing but a joy to learn in the split, in the space that I was teaching and to grow in trust with all of these people who, even if we had different methods and different ideologies about the kids and the environment, our goal was the same. And we were gonna learn with each other to like how to get to that goal. And we could only do that in the building. I think there's something really important in what you're saying about the system teaches to be scared rather than prepared. And that goes to what Emily's saying about you can't learn to be prepared in a classroom. At know, it, yeah. mm -hmm. You know, so how do you react to that, to the, both of you, to those things? I think if we're going to prepare teachers to be in, to, to want to be in schools, to make a difference in an urban school that is struggling, uh, which is my goal. Like I want teachers to go there. I know it's not the right fit for every teacher, um, but those are the kids that, can really benefit from what Keisha said. Mm -hmm. Teachers that love them, teachers that are going to hold them to high expectations with high responsibility and accountability. Those, the discipline side of life that's not punishment, but like boundaries and guidelines. Mm -hmm. This is how we're going to work together. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we're going to get really smart, capable humans into schools like that, we have to be there with them. Um, and show pre-service teachers that's possible. And I think that's what being on site, we can be in this space and we can continue to have school during a lockdown mm -hmm. and we can continue to have school um, and learning and literacy and talking about hard issues that are really happening in schools as part of our literacy class. Um, and I just think it was really important to 
to be able to do that and to prepare, like see it as a possibility. And I can't just talk about it. We can't just read about it. I can't watch videos, um, but walking the halls with the kids makes that a possibility mm -hmm. and like maybe starts to break down some of the, the system makes us scared mm -hmm. because they're in the building. They're learning not to be scared. They're learning that kids are kids. factor in success at Bailey was the presence of more caring, competent adults in the building. Important, as Keisha pointed out, to enable many of the collaborative learning opportunities built into the Bailey structure. And one important low-cost source of this additional relational capacity was residents from the teacher education programs at Vanderbilt. Residents contributed substantively to the growth of the Bailey scholars and to the professional development of their colleagues while literally becoming teachers themselves. I asked Lindsay Nelson, Keenan Kerr, and Julia Conrad to share their experience with you. Lindsay served as the experienced co-conspirator and mentor for Keenan and Julia as they morphed successfully from Vanderbilt master's students into seventh grade teachers. I invited these three in particular because of where they have been and where they are now. Lindsay remains in a similar position as a literacy coach, but in a district outside of Metro Nashville. Keenan left Bailey to spend eight successful years teaching and department chairing in North Carolina before leaving the classroom to develop curriculum at Common Lit and Julia taught in New York City for five years before moving on to a master's degree in public policy at NYU and her current position as assistant director for education at the New York City Independent Budget Office, where she heads the education research and data gathering for New York public schools. As they talk, it's important to keep in mind where they are and where they've been in schools, in consulting work, and in policymaking. Lindsay starts us off. And I do remember the seventh grade having some obvious needs that were going beyond current staffing and the flexibility to be open to some changes of what that could look like, um, including Julia and Keenan as part of that puzzle. Like they were an integral part of this and yet we needed to shift some pieces in order for everyone to feel some success. So I remember that being my involvement of pushing in. I think there we had a homeroom. I think at one point Julia and I shared a homeroom. Keenan was across the hall, yeah, leading leading another ship. Um, and there was a lot of co-planning. There was a lot of problem solving, um, collaboration to like. It wasn't just a buzzword. One of the key instructional memories, and I've, I've, I've talked about this in so many ways over the years, was Julia and I literally dividing the class, desk, chairs, students, books, texts, pencils, everything. We would divide in half. And she was facing me in kind of this reciprocal teaching kind of scenario. And it worked. It was strange and kind of quirky and weird. And there was some, a lot of extra noise, but 
I was with a group of kids. She was with a group of kids. Again, very relational in those decisions. And we would be teaching very similar structure, similar context, text, standards, outcome, assessment, et cetera. But we, and we were in the same classroom usually, but we would, we just use the space in this really flexible way. Um, and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but it was just this freedom to like try it and learn from each other. It was a lot of give and take among us in that classroom space. And then outside of the classroom space, I remember a lot of like co-planning with the two of you, like the three of us were like a think tank. So it was very much, it wasn't one person who held the knowledge and power and wisdom. It was together, we can solve problems and that may or may not work. And then in another week, we're gonna solve a new problem that maybe we created ourselves, <laughs> but together we did it. And there was this commitment for that school year that did not waver. And that's, to me, that was what was so special about what this looked like. To several of your points, Lindsay, I guess one of the lessons learned from my time at Bailey was the importance of having a teammate or a co-conspirator as a teacher, that it's not work that you can do for very long or for very effectively in a silo. Um, and so, you know, at various times, it was always Julia because we were together every day um, teaching. And then at other times that might've been Lindsay or, um, you know, Miss Bradley, Whitney Bradley, even though we weren't even on the same grade level, you find the people that you need. Having been a mentor teacher to other new teachers or student teachers and realizing how tremendously hard it is to give up control in a classroom. Like, gosh, I struggled with that so much. Thinking back to Bailey and what you're describing, Lindsay, like I really didn't know what I was doing at all. And so being able to, to work alongside you and learn from you, but also to be trusted by you, that is such a um, incredible, it instilled a lot of confidence and then it also instilled the ability for me later to forgive myself because a memory I have, the first thing I thought of, is, and I still have these, is that Lindsay would write cards. And I remember, I have them still, and I remember there was like one day, and I couldn't even tell you what happened that day because it doesn't really matter, but something didn't go the way we thought it would. And at the end of the day, we were both kind of devastated, I think, and depleted and tired. And it was sort of a like, okay, we're just going to regroup later. And then I remember the next day you came in and you had a, a card, like a note for me, and you're, you just came in with like so much energy and exuberance and you were like, yep, it didn't work. It was awful. We're going to try again today. Here's what we're going to try different today. And we're going to see how it goes. And we're just going to keep moving forward. And that I think is what made you the ideal mentor teacher and what I aspired to do, because I think you like, you have to anticipate that things will not go well and you have to not internalize it every day and get defeated by it. So I think both being trusted by your mentor teacher to fail sometimes and then learning from them what you do when inevitably things don't go the way you think they will. Um, that's a practice that I think you have to teach also. And I'm so grateful for it. Cause I, and then later I really, really realized how, how much confidence you have to have in yourself to be able to do that with new teachers and novice teachers. And it took me a really long time to get there. 
I think we were all in the trenches. I did, you know, I learned to trust myself in guiding you all as well. Um, I think that was such a time for me of becoming a leader and kind of stepping in to what I believe is some of my calling. I mean, even to this day, you know, I'm still trying to refine that, but those were the beginning steps for me. And I think Christian saw something in me that I was learning about myself and, you know, whatever messages he was sending me, I think I internalized and then also gave you all in return. Um, and, you know, you trickle that down. That's also the leadership kind of ladder rungs. That's what we want to instill in our kids and our students as well, right? Like, it's okay to fail. I know what to do next. Let's do this together. I believe in you. I can pass off this responsibility to you because you can do it. And if it doesn't go well, I'm here to pick up those pieces too. So I think it's just this. So I was learning that about myself and I was learning how to do that in a gracious way and also an urgent way. Like I, I think we all felt the urgency of getting kids to a better place. So I was lear I was learning that as I was leading you all in that. <laughs> like that wasn't something I had all figured out in my head either. Obviously, this small group learned from each other and grew enormously. But they also grew from others within the Bailey culture and from opportunities to study and think with teachers from other schools. I ask them to reflect on this from the perspective of their present work as coach, curriculum developer, and researcher. What would you do to ensure that everybody keeps learning, that everybody keeps growing, that everybody keeps developing? What's, what's needed in a school? You mentioned the visit and learn model. While that may not have been formalized during our time at Bailey, I think it was very much a part of the culture. I don't remember closed doors at that school which is very unique having been in other schools now. Um, so, you know, when we had downtime, which was relatively rare, you know, it was not uncommon to say, I'm going to pop in Charlie's room and see what she's teaching today. And I'm going to pop in, you know, Mr. James's room and see what this kid is doing in his class, mm -hmm. um, even if it was just for 10 minutes. Um, so I do think that was part of the ethos of the Bailey community um, and was very helpful, even though it was not formalized. There, there also was a lot of learning in that we were, Keenan and I would often be coming from school to Peabody, to class. Sometimes, like I remember showing up one time in tears because the day had been so hard and the thought of entering a classroom and talking about theory of pedagogy was like, no, I'm still thinking about what I left behind. Um, but a lot of times it was a place to to like process what happened, to have access to a stable community that's outside of your school environment, to think through just a little bit outside of the space where everything happened, um, and then learn what other people are doing at other schools. And I'd say my experience in a New York City classroom and a New York City school is that they're very much independently, like the principal is in charge and, and things are really, there's not any learning happening across schools. Even in, we have 32 districts within the city school system. And I didn't even know teachers in my own district. And there were only five high schools in my district. So that's crazy. And we would be doing similar things. 
and not talking to each other at all. And I think having a space that gathers people, especially one that's not necessarily politically related to what, what's going on in the school or the leadership in the school, um, at, at having that as a graduate student really opened up a lot of space to process and then imagine what could be different. Because I think you can get really stuck in your own silo of the school. Can you comment on that as as a participant in TELUS? Yeah, for sure. I think there were, when I first you know came to Nashville to go to be a part of TELUS, I had so many unanswered questions about schools and why they were the way they are and you know some of these questions we've been talking about tonight and it it there was there's camaraderie there's you know some of the things that we felt together with the three of us but I felt that with my cohort when I was at Apollo um it was we are living this life together and then our cohort would literally drive to Peabody and then have those reflective conversations we would solve all the ways of the world with Paul Fleming and Christian Sawyer and have to go back to John Hubble at the time and say, okay, so here's what we decided. And we were kind of the majority. And so he just listened to us because it had Barb's stamp of approval. Mm -hmm. So we, um, you know, and in our mind, we've solved everything and it's all great. No, but in reality, it was this, there's a large group of us that are invested in this work right now in a really reflective, thoughtful way. Um, so although it was hard, we were doing the hard together. And so, you know, similar to the Bailey lift that it seems it does, it's not lighter, but it's just doable. It makes you want to keep coming back the next day. Even if you go home crying on a Thursday, you're going to come back Friday morning because your people need you. The other teachers are going to look around and they're going to need you to take your group and the kids are going to look for you. And that meant something. Most teacher education programs put their candidates in the best schools. How can you possibly prepare people to be teachers at a Bailey or even an Apollo, which was a more diverse school, truly diverse school than Bailey was? How can you possibly prepare people to do that if, you, if they never go there, if they don't learn to teach in that setting with motivated and committed people like Lindsay. I can say from my own experience that my time at Bailey made all the difference in my first year of teaching in that I never felt defeated, even on really, really hard days. I thought I can do this again. Um, I've done this before. I got through, um, the tough times with students or colleagues or administration and it's possible. Um, and, and I think too, just the residency model, being at a school from day zero to the end of the year and getting to see that a school year ebbs and it flows, um, that also was very, very important. In feeling prepared um, to do the work of teaching, which is really, really hard work. I think the biggest compliment I got my first year of teaching in New York was that my principal said I didn't seem like a first year teacher. And I said, well, I'm not really because I had a first year of teaching, mm -hmm. but one with a lot of support and forgiveness and growth. So 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think what I, I still, what I wasn't prepared for though is that I didn't really have the same collaborative community and I didn't have a support network. In the course of our conversation, Lindsay raised the issue of the job embedded teacher which is really just a fancy way for designating a teacher candidate who starts the job full-time without any preparation at all. In the face of serious teacher shortages, some folks are recommending that as a way to plug staffing holes. We tried to compare job embedded and resident as Bailey employed those candidates and to consider what's needed to make a job embedded assignment a learning experience. We say in our school, if I was Mr. Magoo and I ran the zoo, <laughs> um, but yeah, the coaching cycle, which, you know, there's kind of a refined, um, boxed in version of this that our county is, you know, they're, they're throwing out there and we're, I adapt it to fit me, but I think I did these really natural coaching cycles with both of you. And I didn't have to have someone tell me do steps one through 10 and then go back to step one. I just did it. Um, but right now with job embedded teachers, and that's something I would like love some more thoughts on, especially because I think you guys were pretty much job embedded teachers before <laughs> this became the, the thing post COVID with this teacher shortage of here's somebody who has an undergrad, doesn't really matter what it is. And all of a sudden on August 1st, you are now a teacher, boom, magic wand. So I am coaching a job embedded teacher right now who's fantastic and lovely and wonderful. And I, we are, it is, we are doing the things. And I, she is building a plane, flying it, crashing it, putting people on it every single day. And I am somewhat of the co-pilot. I'm somewhat at like mission control, whatever that version of a plane is. I don't know all the terminology, but it's, you know, there is this, this essence of, I'm willing and ready, and yet I don't know how to do this. Um, and that's when, when I think of built-in true development as a professional and not just PD, I think that is that is a powerful mentorship and partnership when you can actually come in and ask the teacher what they care about and what they want to improve and what bothers them and what takes up real estate in their brain at midnight. And if that's the starting point, we can we can build on that faster than somebody else deciding for 50 people what we need to sit and talk about on a Wednesday at three o'clock. The difference between maybe the job embedded person that you have right now and these two was that they had been in classes for a year. But my sense is, and I'd love to hear the two of you talk about this, that that even though you had all this knowledge about classrooms and kids and curriculum that, I mean, there you were, and it's a special, Bailey was a special place for God's sakes, but did you feel like, oh yeah, I got this cooked? I felt personally, I don't know if you would agree, Julia, I felt more confident, and this is probably who I am as a teacher in general, in the curriculum piece, like I know what I would love to teach today. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I know, I'm an English major. So I, I kind of know what I'm doing there or enough so that like we can get by. Um, 
with the support of Lindsay and the other folks that I have on my team. But the day-to-day ins and outs of managing a classroom, that was the tough part that, that really I don't, I'm not confident that any coursework can prepare you for what it, the skill set that you need to be an effective um, manager of the business of, of a class of seventh graders. Um, and it helps having a second person in the room because there were many, many moments where I would look at Julia like, I am going to absolutely <laughs> scream, cry. There's going to be some visceral emotional response that happens if I don't just take take a beat. And you had moments like that too, um, where you needed someone else to like tag, I'm it. Um, so having that second person was vital as a teacher resident, um, as a as a new or novice teacher that, as you said, Barb, had some training, had some know-how, but was still very much new, new to this. Like it really makes a difference if your coach knows the school and they know those kids and they know the context and they can talk to you realistically because I've had the alternative, like I taught New York City, did a lot of AP. So I had had to, I didn't want to teach AP US history. And I had a coach from the city who would come once every four weeks to watch my class and then be like, so how do you think it went? And I'd say like, here, and it was totally useless coaching and totally useless mentoring and a waste of, I think he even knew it was a waste of, (laughs) anyway, my point is just that if someone understands you and the context and can say like, and I think the only, the really other point I wanted to add too, is that in those first years, you don't even notice what you're doing right. And so having a mentor who can say, yes, you saw the kid who was bouncing out of their chair because you're noticing, but you didn't notice this magic collaborative learning that was happening in the back room the whole time because you set it up to be that way. So I think I think you need, I think in my dream world, it's like the embedded coaches, the people who are part of the community who understand what's really going on. I think about the parts of Bailey that were unique, that kept us all invested, at least short term. Um, And then seeing kind of that vast difference to the scenario I'm in now, which I was telling Barb earlier, just feels very rigid in top down. It's very black and white. Um, I would like to see in our school right now, I would like to see flexible staffing. I would like to see a flexible budget. Um, I would love to see something more similar to the residency, even for our job embedded folks, where I want to give Ms. Coleman an extra planning period. She needs more than 40 minutes a day to get her life together as a brand new teacher who is learning as she's doing it. Um, I would love to give her more opportunities for us to, to build capacity in her if we're gonna if we're gonna use this model because she she is grounded in the community she worked at our school for a long time 
and more of an aid role. She is exactly the kind of person you build her up and she feels some success. She's going to stay. I mean, she is. So I think of smaller communities, especially more rural areas where we are, that's what we need that. But we also have to give her, we have to launch her well. And I think at the school level, we need more options in order to specify what that looks like. Um, and that's just, that's as of right now, that's very limiting. But anytime the talk of retention comes up, I raise my hand and have things to say. As dull a topic as professional development might be politically, Lindsay points us to the importance of teacher learning in the hottest topic going in schools, teacher retention and the shortages that we now face. And it's worth thinking about why these three Bailey teachers are where they are and not in the classroom. Lindsay is back in schools after stepping out to work at the Tennessee Department of Education. Keenan and Julia left their schools when they realized that there was no path forward for them, no roles and responsibilities that would let them grow and lead. Listen to them make sense of all of this. We actually are doing really well at hiring. We're having trouble retaining. Like mm -hmm. we're back to pre-COVID hiring levels in New York okay. City. Okay. This is from research that we've done and it's, but we have trouble retaining teachers and it's teachers this is awful because I feel like a statistic, but it's teachers like after their fifth year. And I think mm -hmm. I'm curious what, what Lindsay has seen too and Keenan, but my, my feeling personally, not from a research perspective is that after five years, I know enough to understand what's happening, but there's no pathway for me. There's no agency. And I, there weren't teacher leader roles. So my move, mm -hmm. I was already the head of my grade team. Didn't like, and that didn't pay me any extra. So mm -hmm. I either go into administration, which is totally, it's, it's challenging and rewarding, but it's different. And it didn't have the same interest to me that teaching did. So it felt like a totally different career in some ways. And I didn't know what else I would get to do to feel like I'm making an impact. So I mm -hmm. just became really aware of all the ways that I couldn't. And I, I wonder if maybe there's something in that moment of like, how do you take on new teacher leadership roles within a school? And I think North Carolina's situation is totally different. Um, for starters, we don't have a union, um, which there's a lot that can be said about that. Secondly, um, our state legislature for years now has been systematically dismantling our public education system. Um, I was listening to the news yesterday and CMS, which was my, my district, we have like 500 teacher vacancies at this point. So it, it's just really untenable, um, especially in high need schools. Um, there's no financial incentive to stay at 15 years, your salary like maxes out. You don't have step increases after that. They have, um, in terms of your question, Barb, like how do we attract people who are well-equipped for the work um, from an academic perspective? There's no pay increases, salary increases for folks with advanced degrees. So it, it just, they've made teaching a really, really unattractive profession. Um, 
So we have to start with, I think, voting folks into office who value public education. And, and up until this point, we haven't been doing that. Very different situation, I think, than, than New York. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's what we're facing. Um, I think I'll add too. So even within my 17 years, you know, I, I left schools. I stayed in the realm of education, but I did some different roles in a different capacity that were interesting to me at the time. And um, I needed that. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, I needed um, perspective in that way. And I also realized I'm not meant to live in a cubicle on the 12th floor <laughs> and look at the birds at 1, 8, 1 p.m. Um so I think my heart was drawn back to schools and not that it will forever and ever be in a middle school building itself. But, um, you know, I do think there's something to be said for like just personal, like, where are you fulfilled? Why are we here? Right. Like, what are we when we're walking around a building or walking to a classroom at 7 a.m.? Who are we doing it for? Um, and then if if the bureaucracy and the policy can get out of the way and let teachers teach, as you say, Barb, so much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I had a teacher tell me that when I was in CMS, Keenan, my fifth year, so this is all matching up with all the statistics, it seems like, and I was thinking, I've, what's going on here? And I want a voice in it. And a, a mentor teacher of mine said, Lindsay, close your door and teach. Mm -hmm. And that was the message to me then. And I still have that in my head of, close the door and teach, just teach. And some things we're going to have to ignore. Some things we're going to have to do late. We might not meet a deadline or a rule, or we might break a rule. And if it's for the sake of kids learning and feeling valued in this classroom, then I'm going to do that. And I'm going to apologize later. And we have to have more people who are willing to do that at all levels in order to attract and retain people to continue this work. Lindsay is right that we need teachers willing to break a rule for the sake of kids learning, willing to just do what is right and block out the noise in the face of limiting school structures and nonsensical professional development plans. But does it have to be that way? The Bailey story is evidence that it does not. It is possible to structure schools as learning organizations, as places where everybody in the building is learning from each other, while also taking advantage of outside resources. So what does teacher learning look like in the good school? a lot like it looked at Bailey. Teacher learning is rooted in collaborative work with other teachers and with coaches who know both the students and their needs and the school community and its circumstances. Teacher learning in the good school leverages local talent before seeking outside expertise. That doesn't mean that outside opportunities, workshops, conferences, aren't important for individuals, but those have to be voluntary and fully supported. ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, describes high quality professional learning 
as sustained, intensive, collaborative, job-embedded, data-driven, and classroom-focused. That matters because federal ESSA funds can be spent on high-quality professional learning. Instead of hiring a consulting firm to do PD for $300,000, a school could hire eight residents for an entire year and get both a big boost in relational capacity benefiting the students that year and the even bigger boost of well-prepared and confident teachers in high-need schools for years to come. At the present time, Professional development is an $18 billion enterprise. In other words, consultants of all kinds are charging school districts $18 billion to do the work that teachers in the school could be doing for each other, given time and the green light. Keisha is now making more money and getting more respect than she would as a teacher doing the same thing she did for her Bailey community, bringing joy and elevating talent. Keenan left a job in her North Carolina district to indulge and expand her special gift with curriculum, making more money now than she would make in her 30th year as a teacher. Julia sought another way to make a difference when the structure of teaching left her without opportunities to grow in role and responsibility. Why can't we figure out ways to spend that $18 billion on elevating teacher leaders, on funding full residencies, on staffing schools flexibly and well enough that teachers can grow? Take on more challenging work and make more money in the bargain. The topic of teacher learning is critical for the actual quality of education, but weirdly uncontroversial and mostly ignored. Next time, we're coming in hot with an issue that is wildly controversial, but maybe not all that important when it comes to the impact on kids' experience in school, parents' rights. Tune in to hear from Moms for Liberty and Grandmoms for Love and the loud but easily misrepresented fight over parents' rights. But also to hear from educators who are parents and parents who are not educators about their hopes for their children. Parents' rights matter very much, but parents' rights can't capture what parents really want for their kids in school. More on that soon. See you next time. Today, and always, I want to give a shout out to our production and editing team here at Chasing Bailey. Our editors are Brenna Fallon and Sam Deacon. Ruby Mundock handles promotional efforts. Our executive producer is Dr. Larry Woodall. I'm delighted to be working with this student faculty team at Millersville University to make Chasing Bailey an educational effort in every way. We are, all of us, teaching and learning all the time. And as usual, if you are a regular Chasing Bailey listener, please be sure to leave a review and spread the word among the educators, parents, and policymakers you know. If you are just tuning in, 
please subscribe to the podcast so that we'll know we're getting the word out. And if you have any questions or suggestions, we want to hear from you. Email us at chasingbaileypod at gmail.com. Together, we can spread the word that the path toward our best educational efforts and the best educational system we can craft runs through the attention we pay to educators.